Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Mark Siegel, the author of And Then I Danced. Mark Siegel, author of And Then I Danced, Traveling the Road to LGBT Equality. Why did you decide to write your book now? I'm old. <laughs> I'm 64 years old. I've been doing this since I was 18 years old. And uh, people have been asking me to do it for the last 20 years. And when they first started asking me, I felt, I don't have any life to write about. There'd be nothing exciting. And when I put it down on paper, finally, in the last few years, I began to realize uh, that maybe they were correct. Well, for people who don't know you, what is the this you've been doing since you were 18 years old? Since I was 18, I've been a gay activist. People call me a publisher. Other people say, you're an award-winning writer. Some people say a successful businessman. Uh, some a developer. Some a concert, concert promoter. But to me, I'll always be a gay activist. At 18 years old, that's what I define myself as. And in one night. What was the, the, the gay world and the perception of it by the straight world like when you were 18? Well, when I was 18, which was 1969, LGBT people like me wouldn't be appearing on this show. In fact, we wouldn't be appearing on any TV show. Gay people were totally invisible. We didn't appear on TV shows. We didn't appear on radio shows. To every single church, no matter what kind it was, Jewish, Muslim, or Christian, we were immoral. To police, we were illegal. To the psychiatric institutions, we were sick. Um, so by 1969, we were nobody. We weren't known. And like me, if you were growing up at that point, you were very much in the closet. You kept quiet about it. You were ashamed of it. You were afraid of it. And you didn't talk about it to anybody. And since there was nothing on TV, radio, and there was no internet, you couldn't find out anything about it. So you didn't know who you were, why you were. Um, so most people, like me, escaped their little cities, or what I thought was a little city, which was Philadelphia, and went to the big city where I thought I'd find other people like me. In my case, it was New York. What did you do in New York, and when did you start becoming an activist? Well, at the, end of, at the beginning of my last year in high school, I realized I was going to escape, or at least I called it an escape. I didn't see, think at that point that there was anything wrong with me. I knew who I was, but I didn't understand it because there was nothing to find out about it. So I was planning to go to New York. I told my parents I'd gotten into a technical institute in New York and planned my getaway. Also told them I was saving for many years. None of which was true. Oh, you didn't tell them the real reason? N of course not. Uh, at that time in 1969, most people did not tell their parents. So in, in May, May 10th, exactly, 1969, I escaped to New York with no money, no prospects, no job, no nothing. Just in hunt of who I was, what, 
What was I all about? Were there other people like me? Could I have a life? Absolutely zero prospects in my life. No future in mine whatsoever. So what did you do when you stepped off the bus or off the train? Stepped off the bus, train first thing was finding a place to live, which I'd already arranged, which was the local YMCA on 34th Street. Um, somehow I knew gay people were in the village, and I went to the village my first night out and found a place called Christopher Street, which primarily were p places where gay people hung out. It was our neighborhood. And I walked up and down that street every night. And one particular night, the last Saturday in June, I walked into a bar, which I frequented, which people of my age and people with no prospects, street kids uh, and so forth, went in all the time. It was called the Stonewall. Uh, in gay history, that's a very pivotal part of our history. That night in particular, the bar got raided by police. And rather than what normally happened when a police, when a gay bar got raided, uh, which you got to remember at that time in New York, if you owned a bar and you served known homosexuals, you would lose your license. So this was a gay bar. And the police knew it, but they took payoffs. And they would come in, and every once in a while, just to make it look good, they would raid the bar. Well, this night, people decided they weren't going to have it. But what's usual in a raid, the lights go up, uh, and the police, the first thing they do is card people for ages. Now, I look like, coming from Philadelphia, I look like the kid next door. And I was of no use to the police. So I was one of the first people to get carded and get out of the bar. Other people, like older men, they could usually get some money from, uh, or the more stereotypical people or drag queens, they could harass. So they kept them in there last. Uh, I walked out, and I was, unlike everybody says, they were brave if they were Stonewall. I wasn't. It was my first raid. I was scared to death. Um, I w walked across the street very nervously uh, to Sheridan Park and just watched for a little while. And I kept watching. And as people got out of the bar, they started surrounding the bar, primarily semicircle around the door. Um, and that eventually turned into what we call the Stonewall Riots. Luckily enough, a guy came up to me with chalk, and this is my total involvement in the Stonewall Riots, uh, and said, right on the walls and the streets, up and down Christopher Street, tomorrow night, Stonewall. And that became the first of four nights of rallies which created what we call the New Gay Rights Movement. What did it change? Well, what happened was, up until that point, there was a very loose connection of a gay rights movement. The gay rights movement began in 1925 with the first gay organization being chartered in Chicago uh, by, by a man by the name of Henry Gerber. Um, that was pretty brave in 1925. But between 1925 and Stonewall, there were no more than 100 gay activists around the country out and open. So within that, for, from Stonewall, from the ashes of Stonewall, we created an organization called Gay Liberation Front. Gay Liberation Front was what we called the first new gay organization. We were, rather than just having one picket line once a year, we were in-your-face gay people, and we not only asked for, we demanded rights. Within that first year, we decided to do something that was unheard of, create a community where there was none before. Before 1969, there was no gay community. There were gay people who existed. They went to gay bars. They get to, went to private parties. They went to other places where they could meet gay people. But there were no health organizations. There were no youth organizations. 
There were no trans organizations. There were no gay community centers. We created all of that within that first year. And when we wanted to celebrate the first gay, the, that first gay year, we had a, the very first gay pride march. And we went from 100 out people to 15,000. Not bad for one year. And that's all thanks to Gay Liberation Front. Now, you do say in your book that the Gay Liberation Front, in all likelihood, was the most dysfunctional LGBT organization that ever existed. Thank you for that question. And yes, it was. And I'm very proud to have been part of that dysfunction. Uh, we were. What happened after Stonewall was, in a sense, a miracle. Various people in that time period were, you know, fighting for their rights. The, the most notable, of course, is the black community. Um, but so were women, so were Latinos. Uh, but gay people weren't because we were this group that had to be silent and invisible. But some people already were meeting to change that. And some of those groups were called the radical lesbians. Some were radical sep lesbian separatists. They didn't want to be anywhere near men. And some men were trying to discover their sexuality, so they were called fairy collectives. Um, and they didn't want to have anything to do with women. Somehow, after Stonewall, we all got together. All those people who wanted to be separate and independent, all those people who were working on their own movements, decided we as a group have to come together, unite, and do something. And so because we were also fighting sexism, no one person could ever lead the organization. We had no officer, no chair people. There was a different chairperson every single meeting. Uh, there was no Robert's Rules of Order. They were totally chaotic. How we did anything and got anything done is sort of a miracle. And how we got all those things done in one year is nothing short of amazing. What kinds of things did you do to, to uh, create a community or to organize those things? Well, after about the third or fourth meeting, I realized that the needs of young gay people were not being taken care of. We were talking about how to take care of the police and make sure the bars weren't raided anymore, how to make sure the police weren't blackmailing gay people anymore. And I realized there was an issue of bullying, um, teen suicide because people were gay. Uh, so I created the nation's first gay youth organization, which was a committee of gay liberation front. Other people in 1969, I mean, we're talking about Caitlin today, and this is 2015. In 1969, we created the first trans organization. That's sort of amazing. We issued health alerts, which had never been done before in the gay community. We created a gay community center where anybody could come and hold dances in the evening or do peer counseling. Never been done before. And by the end of the year, we held the first gay pride parade, saying basically, you know, have pride in yourself, have pride in who you are. You know, you're as equal as the person next to you. What kind of pushback did you get? I think people were afraid of us. We were radical. I mean, we were so radical that there was a man living in New York at the time by the name of Harvey Milk uh, that he wouldn't come anywhere near us. He was afraid of us. So if our own people were afraid of us, others were afraid. When we did the first Gay Pride March, which was called Christopher Street Gay Liberation March, uh, we uh, had classes in self-defense because we were afraid that we were going to be attacked because we were marching all the way from Christopher Street all the way to Central Park, which was uptown. Um, we had not one bit of problem. And the New York Times estimates that march at anywhere between five and 15,000. 
And you talk in the book about uh, some rifts in uh, the gay rights movement between the radicals and the moderates. First of all, why did you want to be on the radical side? And can you explain that, that rift? For, well, when I got to New York, it was 1969, the t time of free love, uh, spirit in the air, guys who were, uh, and women, who were trying to create a new uh, subculture. And the gay community was nowhere involved in that at all until our group, Gay Liberation Front, came along. The only thing that there was in New York at the time was something called Mattachine Society. And I had walked into their office, and they were people doing what I'm doing today, wearing a suit and a tie. But young people like me at that time were more interested in wearing T-shirts and jeans. We didn't fit in with that crowd, but they thought that's what they had to do to relate to the rest of the world. So we decided to create something that was more counterculture, uh, and that's what GLF became. And we were going to not only just ask for the right to have a job, we were also going to do something that no one's ever done before. We were going to define ourselves rather than let society define us. So some of those meetings were chaotic because we were trying to understand who we were. Men were trying to understand who they were rather than the preconceptions that society had put on us. Women were trying to do the same thing. At the same time, women were also part of the women's liberation movement. So they, were, they had a double fight on, on their hand. African Americans, likewise, in our community. So the, it, it was difficult. D did your movement find any common cause with the women's liberation movement at the time or the, the black uh, civil rights organizations? Absolutely. Um, we realized that, in a sense, a sub-part of our community was fighting sexism. While women were always being told they had to be feminine and they always had to fit into the same roles, we discovered we had to fit into the same roles, which meant that, according to uh, the images that society had of us, Gay men were always feminine, gay women were always butch. Well, if you looked at our meeting, that just wasn't true. If you go to a gym today, you'll find the most masculine people in gyms happen to be gay men. Uh, we discovered gyms was an in thing in the gay community before it was in the rest of uh, the nation. Uh, so that myth just wasn't true. So we were fighting that myth, and that's sexism, basically. So we found a common core there. I found, found a common core personally, because my grandmother, uh, who taught me well, uh, was a suffragette. So uh, I understood women's rights long before I got to New York. And uh, she took me in my first civil rights uh, march when I was 13 years old. So I understood what civil rights was. I understood uh, what women's rights were. And so actually, when I was standing outside Stonewall, what was going through my mind was, why don't we have those rights? Why aren't we fighting for our rights like other groups have done? It was already implanted in my head. Well, you tell me about her. You write about her, your grandmother, and she's like an anti-mame type. Oh, grandmom was the light of my life. Uh, I grew up uh, as the only Jewish family in a Philadelphia housing project. So as I was growing up, we were poor, uh, which is in the Jewish faith and family, we were the lowest rank of our family. And being the only Jewish person uh, in a housing project, uh, I grew up at a time when Christians thought the Jews were evil and that we killed Christ. Uh, somebody once told me I was going to have horns growing out of my head. And an eight-year-old child, I was already thinking, my God, I'd already murdered somebody, and how am I going to comb my hair with these horns growing out? 
So I understood discrimination from a very early age. But the light of my life was Fanny Weinstein. She would swoop in and take me to a show or, or a museum or to a civil rights demonstration. And in the summertime, I always spent two weeks with her at her house down in Atlantic City. And she would show me off to all her women friends. And the highlight of those two weeks is at the end of the two weeks, she would throw a dinner party for little eight or nine-year-old me as me as the guest of honor and bring in a diversity of people for me to meet. And they really were diversity. Um, at a time when most people stuck with their own kind, she brought, brought in Catholics, Irish, Italians, Latinos, African-Americans, all for her grandson to meet and get to know that the world is a diversity. Now, when you were in New York and uh, organizing, what kind of treatment did you get from the media, from the television stations, the newspapers? Well, I remember the first radio show I did as a gay youth or gay liberation front member. Uh, it was WBAI radio. And the first telephone call after the interview was a guy with a very heavy uh, Jewish accent. And he calls me and says, Mr. Siegel, are you Jewish? And I said, yes, I am. He says, no, you can't be Jewish if you're homosexual. And I said, but I am. Get over it. And that was my reaction. And uh, I said, why do you say that? And he said, well, it's in the Bible. I go, okay, what part of the Bible? Or in your part, what part of the Torah? It says, man cannot lie with man. It is abomination. I said, well, if you're going to take that part of the Bible, there's other parts of the Bible that you should be taking. Do you eat shrimp or lobster? If you do, you're an abomination. Do you wear gold and silver at the same time? Another abomination. And I could read on and on and on, particularly in Leviticus. I said, do you watch football? You know, they use a pigskin for a football. That's an abomination. All of those people are going to hell. He hung up. <laughs> well, were there people in your movement who considered themselves to be practicing Christians and could reconcile the, the two different sides of it? One of the most interesting demonstrations of that first year uh, was when we demonstrated against a man who was trying to create a gay church. Uh, the church is in existence today. It's the largest of its type. It's called Metropolitan Community Church. Uh, the man who was organizing was a man by the name of Reverend Troy Perry. So he had a meeting to organize his New York church in New York at a place called the Summit Hotel. We members of Gay Liberation Front decided to picket him. It's the first time and only time that I know of one gay organization picketing another. And the reason we were doing so is that we had decided, and this is what I mean by radical, was that uh, the largest organization that ever oppressed uh, gay people was the church. And for 2,000 years, they had been oppressing gay people. And we weren't going to let religion come into the gay community. So we went and picketed Reverend Troy Perry. At the end of his organizing meeting, he came out and talked to a few of them, one of which was me. And he made a very important part, which I've understood ever since, which was, you're never going to reach those people who are already young and Christian. They, they know their values. They believe in Christ. And you're not going to do anything. You're going to scare them away. But I have a place where they can come and appreciate Christ and also appreciate their gayness. And that's the first time that I understood and appreciate what he could do. And I've been a supporter of that church and other churches like Dignity for Gay Catholics and, and the gay synagogues and even gay mosque. When did you move back to Philadelphia? 
1971, I moved back. My mother got ill, had kidney disease. And my father called up and said, Mark, I'd appreciate if you move home. We're going to need some help. And I moved home. Uh, and my parents uh, accepted me for who I was and what I wanted to do, which was I had a career without making a living. Because in 1969-71, gay activists didn't get paid for anything. Uh, so what did you do for a living? Well, I had various jobs. Uh, but the leading job I had was a taxi driver. I was a taxi driver in New York. I drove for Hudson Garage. Uh, what was that like? It was fast driver in Manhattan. It was fascinating. You'd pick people up uh, depending on if they wanted to have a conversation or not. You'd have a conversation. Um, I remember taking someone on one uh, fare, and uh, they got out of the cab and ran away, and I had to pay for it. Uh, there's only I, everybody always talks about celebrities they had in their cab. I had one celebrity after driving for a year and a half. That one celebrity was someone I'd really admired a great deal. His name was Stephen Sondheim. He got in the cab. I recognized him at a time when he was just beginning his career. I guess I shouldn't have, but I'd seen his show Company and Follies. And uh, I was so enamored by him, I couldn't say a word. And when you moved back to Philly, was, a, was there a particular conversation you had with your parents where you said, well, I'm gay? Well, no. Uh, being the brave soul that I am, uh, having gay youth, having organized gay youth, we were speaking in high schools. By the way, the first time anybody ever spoke about the subject of gay rights in high school was in 1975. It was Oceanside High School, and it was Tony Russomano and myself. And we went there as part of the gay youth group. It's one of the things we did, right? It meant we were being out and in your face. We really were. We were going places that had never seen openly gay people before. And the headline of their newspaper, school newspaper, the following week was a, cap, was a picture of us with the caption, gay activists say they are not neurotic. So I was also counseling gay young people on what to say to their parents and um, literally how not to commit suicide. And I thought, you know, I hadn't come out to my parents yet. Maybe I should. So I did the real brave thing. I called them on the telephone uh, and told them. And they took it very well, unlike most parents. My father, to my shock and chagrin, said, you know, I had an idea. Here, talk to your mother. And put my mother on the phone. Her only concern at all was that uh, I'd be lonely uh, in my old age. That was her only concern. How often did you face hostility, threats, violence? Often. Uh, I got arrested, I can't tell you how many times. Uh, I got arrested my first year in New York, and I, to this day I don't remember why, uh, but I do have the receipt for the arrest, which is about the only thing I have about it. And no one else in GLF can remember what, what that date was. Uh, that's how many arrests we had in GLF. Um, death threats. The last death threat I had, which was uh, kind of amusing, someone sent to my office, uh, a death threat, and they put the return address on the envelope. So doing the normal thing, I called the police. I said, you might want to check into this. And they did, and they came back and said, I don't think you have to worry about them. How long ago was that? About five years ago. Now, there's a picture of you on the cover being uh, arrested, and uh, that, that is you there with the long hair. With the, the long hair. I actually had hair at one point. <laughs> uh, how did you get people looking like that? How did you get people to take you seriously in uh, dealing with the mainstream? Well, as I said earlier, 
uh, one of the things that we did was end invisibility. And that was primarily something that I understood. Uh, I realized that first year that we had get, by creating a community, we had stopped invisibility, but we'd only done it inside our community. We were, we were advertising or promoting ourselves to people in our community. We were saying, hey, look, there's this issue. Why don't you come out and help us with it? You know, there's a youth issue. There's a trans issue. There's a an issue of people being on the streets. Um, uh, let's deal with these issues, medical issues. But we hadn't gone before the general public. And my feeling was, unless we did that, we would never get full equality. So I started something called uh, Fight Against the Networks, which basically was a way to get us before the cameras or the press. And I would use any gimmick, I don't care how crazy it was, to get the press to take notice of us. These are the zaps? They were the zaps, yeah. I handcuffed myself to various things. I put a neck brace around myself and closed the doors of the United Way. I handcuffed myself to the Liberty Bell. Uh, but most importantly, I realized that the, the most important thing one could do was disrupt live TV. Because in those days, there were only three networks, NBC, ABC, and CBS, and PBS, which is how everybody always said it. There was no cable TV. There was no Internet. That was our mass communications, lock, stock, and barrel. So I started disrupting TV shows. I disrupted uh, the Mike Douglas show. I disrupted the uh, Tonight Show, the Today Show. But the one most people remember is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. And the reason they remember that is because Walter was the most trusted man in America, and he also was the TV king. Sixty million people watched his newscast every night. That's a huge number. So one night, while he's reading his broadcast, um, and it was a very small studio, there was his desk here and the camera here. Well, I walked in front of that camera and sat on his desk, basically blocking Walter, and into the camera read a statement which said, gays protest CBS prejudice, at which point the CBS network all across the nation went black, and the technicians wrapped me in wires on the floor. And about eight minutes later, Walter came back on the air and read a statement. And the statement was, uh, for the first time, we've had somebody disrupt the CBS Evening News. He says he's from a group called Gay Raiders, and he's demonstrating against what he says is prejudice against the gay and lesbian community. What Walter didn't know was, when he said those words, it was the first time that the words gay and lesbian had ever been said on network television. And 16 million people had not only heard the words, they'd seen a gay man for the first time on network TV. How'd you get in the building in the first place? Uh, a little deception. Uh, I'd sent a letter saying that I was a radio film television student at Temple University. And um, I would, I'm writing my term paper on how a network news show is, is produced, and could I come up and watch a broadcast? And so therefore, they invited me into the studio. Ruining it for all the radio, television, film students for all time after that, I suppose. No, I like to think of it as educating them, and uh, educating them on an issue uh, that they needed to learn. I think that a good deal of America learned of gay rights that night, because not only did it appear in front of 60 million people, it was basically on the front page 
of every newspaper in America the following day. And following that, I did every talk show that existed in America, continuing to talk about the issue. Uh, I was a guest on the Phil Donahue three times, and he was the Oprah Winfrey of his day. Um, I appeared on Sally Jesse Raphael uh, uh, and whatever show there was out there all across the country. How did Walter Cronkite take it? Walter uh, was really decent about it. We uh, went on trial about uh, two months later in New York, and during the trial, uh, they had to cut for a minute because they had to set up a projection system to show the tape of what actually happened. So I went in the hall to talk to my lawyer, Hal Wiener, and as I'm in that, I felt a tap on my back, and I turned around, and the man said, you must be Mark Sigel. And I looked at him, I said, you know what, you must be Walter Cronkite. And he said, very casually, why did you do what you did? And I said, because your newscast censors and is biased to gay people. And Walter, being the journalist that he is, said, uh, that's impossible, not true. And I said, if I can prove it to you, will you change it? And he said, absolutely, but you can't prove it. I said, well, a month ago, didn't you do a report on... Uh, 6,000 women marching up 6th Avenue to proclaim International Women's Year? And he said, yes, it was a valid news story. I said, I agree with you. It was a valid news story. I said, then why didn't you cover 15,000 gay men and lesbians walking up that same exact avenue just a few months prior to that? He just kept quiet. I said, let me ask you another one. I said, last week you did your first report, other than me, on a gay rights story. And that was the uh, failure of New York City to pass a gay rights bill for the third time. Why didn't you report on that? Uh, why did you report on that? He just looked at me quizzical, and I said, well, guess what? You never reported on the 26 other cities that had passed gay rights. That's bias. And he just gave me a nod, walked off, and went back into the courtroom. And when he testified after them showing the clip, his line was, well, we did invite him into the studio. Um, Walter then, about a year later, and I was in uh, Florida and uh, helping a candidate who was running for office, and I was in the wings, and I was sort of hiding from Walter. I figured he wouldn't want to see me or even know me for that fact. And he saw me, and he walked up and said, Mark, how you doing? Put his hand out, shook my hand. He says, hey, if you ever find yourself in New York, Give me a call. We'll have lunch, dinner, or, you know, drink. And gave me his card and uh, began a lifelong friendship. Now, who did you encounter in situations like that who was not so, so uh, open to, to your point of view? I made it a point of always uh, writing letters to anybody that I disrupted and saying, it was nothing against you personally. It was against the network. I am trying to change images. The only person who never replied was Johnny Carson. In fact, Johnny Carson, The Tonight Show, actually started making a joke out of what I had done. Uh, on The Tonight Show, I had, in the middle of his monologue, handcuffed, walked out of the audience and handcuffed myself to his camera. And uh, the producer came up and said, if you keep quiet and don't disrupt the monologue, we'll talk with you and try to solve your grievances. That never happened. When they went to commercial, police came in, arrested me, and 
put me, ask you asked me earlier about threats against my life, put me in a cell next to two guys who just killed a gay man because he was gay. Uh, but uh, after that, uh, a new character started appearing in Johnny Carson's monologues. It was called the Burbank One. He used to make jokes about the Chicago Seven. Now it was the Burbank One, which was me. Uh, this was in when it was live. The show was live, or was the show taped. His show was taped earlier in the evening. And were there times you were invited on a talk show, a radio show, or something, and and the the person just ambushed you and went after you? Well, the only time that would happen is if there was a studio audience. And in the case of Phil Donahue, that was constant. He always had a studio audience. And uh, he warned me before I got on his first show that uh, he would have a lot of religious extremists in the audience. And I said, that's not a problem. We'll deal with it. And the first question was the same question I'd gotten with WBAI. You're going to hell. It says in the Bible, you're going to hell. And the lady had all these things that she was wearing that was against Leviticus. I said, well, what about you? Look at what you're wearing. Um, it says those same exact words in Leviticus. Are you going to hell? And she didn't quite know what to say. I said, and by the way, uh, do you know the one about gluttony? Because she was a little overweight. Uh, I threw that in for good measure. I said, so let us try to agree to disagree on this subject, but let's do it with, with, with respect. And from that point on, the rest of the audience was pretty cool. When you moved to Philadelphia, was there a, an existing LGBT scene or movement at the time? There was, but I was a little arrogant and thought that I could help it along since I was part of GLF, and we were the vanguard of the movement. So you would have been about 20 years old at the time? Yes, uh, about 21. Uh, and I quickly put myself into a position as political chair of Gay Activist Alliance, which was a great organization. And the problem with, great, uh, with, with GLA, uh, GAA, Gay Activist Alliance, was that they had a president, a vice president, a treasurer, and they ran from Robert's Rule of Order. And it was something new to me that I had to learn. And so I learned that very quickly, and I got elected political chair, promising that I would get a gay rights bill introduced into Philadelphia City Council. And that had been an impossibility for them for several years. They just couldn't do it. And so that was my new job, getting a gay rights bill introduced. So uh, I would sit outside of council people's offices, and they wouldn't meet with me. I would sit outside where they went to lunch, and they would eventually get to know me. And as they walked by, I'd go, I'm a pretty nice guy. Talk with me. You know, we'll, we'll do fine. Uh, and eventually several of them did, and we got that bill introduced to council. Were you a nice guy throughout this, or were you angry? I think I was a nice guy. Um, I believe in nonviolence. Uh, I've never been violent. Uh, there, there's a story that uh, uh, one of the people I uh, zapped uh, tells in his autobiography. Uh, he says that the time I disrupted his TV show, which was Action News uh, on another station. Uh, that you can mention the station if you want. WPVI. And it's, um, he writes that uh, after we were done, they found splattered blood on the wall walls. Well, we were nonviolent. The only violence came from people trying to wrap us in uh, cable wires. Um, and I think that the only thing that got smeared that day was that the sportscaster got his makeup 
uh, on my jacket. And I said, hey, you know, you're a sports person. You know, you're not supposed to be the one wearing makeup. I am, just to break the stereotype. I, I said, and I don't wear makeup. <laughs> when you came back to Philadelphia, was Frank Rizzo the uh, chief of police? When I came back, he was chief of police, then became mayor. How'd you get along with him? I had a great relationship with Frank Rizzo. I know that sounds off the wall, uh, but the first time I met uh, Frank Rizzo, I was handcuffed to the Christmas tree inside City Hall Courtyard, trying to get that gay rights bill that we had introduced passed, because now we couldn't get it passed. So I'm sitting there, and for whatever reason, Frank Rizzo told the staff he wanted to meet me. And the staff tried to talk him out of it, uh, but they couldn't talk him out of it. And Marty Weinberg, uh, years later, I said, how did that meeting occur? And why did he want to meet with me? And Frank Rizzo said, uh, and I'll try to say this politely because I know you have a family show, the kid has blank. <laughs> uh, think, of think of baseball at that point. <laughs> um, and so I went up there. And he said, what are you trying to do? I said, I'm trying to get a gay rights bill passed so gay people can get equality. And he said, well, you know, I can't do very much with city council, he said, but the Human Relations Commission happens to be, you know, part of my administration. Oh, he was I, mayor then? He was mayor then. And he said, I can have them hold hearings for you. And he got on the phone, called the director of the Human Relations Commission, and they held the hearings that we wanted city council to hold. And we had two days of hearings, and they went really well. And we proved the point overwhelmingly of the problems gay people have in the Philadelphia region. Um, and they issued a report which said basically that. And that sort of embarrassed the then city council president, who was uh, George Schwartz, who many people would know from later from uh, American Gigolo, because he's one of the abscam people who got convicted later on out of that scandal. But he was not happy about it. And so he decided he would hold the official city council hearings. And he was not a nice man. Um, and so when I got up to testify, uh, all he could ask me is after I read my testimony was, Mr. Sigel, you're gay. And I said, yes. And he's shouting at me. He says, what does that mean? Uh, and I said, it means that I like men rather than women. Um, I said, romantically, that's who I'm attached to. And he says, what does that mean? And I said, sir, I think I've just told you. Um, and he said, what does that mean? And I said, but sir, I just told you. He says, does that mean you do it with parakeets? What kind of person are you? And he just started screaming and yelling. Um, and I basically said, thank you, sir, and got up and walked out. Um, and I was very offended by that. I mean, he had one view and one view only of the entire gay community, and that was a view of sex. And it was offensive. And I was very hurt. And I left him. How, how did you get along with the Philadelphia police at the time? Other than when they were arresting me, very well. How often did you get arrested? I can't count the times. Uh, but uh, some of the policemen uh, who didn't know me would put me in the paddy wagon, handcuff me behind the back. Shouldn't say paddy wagon, by the way, because that's an offensive term to Irish. In the police wagon, and uh, with my handcuffs behind my back, nothing to hold on to, and I got the famous nickel ride where they would go as fast as they could, turn corners, and bounce you around the wagon. But other than that, uh, there was a guy in Philadelphia by the name of Inspector Fensel, and he tried to uh, arrange with me that when I would have a demonstration that I would get arrested humanely. 
When did you first hear about AIDS? 1981, where there was a rumor going on there was this gay cancer going on. But it was really diagnosed or we knew there was something serious in 1982. How did it change the gay community? All those people who thought that people like me and GLF were radical, all of a sudden they realized that we were fighting for our lives. And they became radicalized. They began to realize why we were fighting. And so we had now had a community of tens of thousands across the country fighting to hundreds of thousands. The community became very politicized. And we began to realize that we had to change not only the political system, but also the medical system. In the early days of AIDS, many doctors refused to treat people uh, with AIDS. I mean, what about their oath? Many funeral powers refused to take AIDS bodies. Um, many police and ambulance refused to take people to hospitals. I remember going to a studio uh, like this to talk about AIDS on a TV show, and the technicians refused to put the microphone on my collar, thinking that I might have AIDS simply because I was gay. Were, was there an atmosphere of fear in the gay community? Like, like this is... Absolutely. There was a fear and wonderment of where this was coming from, how it happened. Um, many gay people thought it was the government that had done it purposely. Um, we had no idea. There were all types of theories. Uh, and once we learned what it was and how it could be uh, learning that education was the only way to stop it, we didn't have our government as help at all. In fact, the first four years of the Reagan administration, he tried his best to ignore it. And when we had a march about AIDS in Washington, they actually closed the curtains at the White House we walked by. What administration? That was it, Reagan? That was Ronald Reagan, who uh, literally allowed AIDS to go on and cross this country for four years. What would you have wanted? We would have liked them to have the government look into and research the issue of what it was about. We would have liked the government to spread information, educational information. If that would have been ha happened, we would have literally saved millions of lives. And can, can you talk about the treatment of AIDS now? What, is it less of a problem now? Well, today we have cocktails which we can give them. And some people like to put it on a par with diabetes. As long as you take your drugs, you'll be okay if you get it. But it's allowing some young people to believe that they could do whatever they want sexually without it being transmitted. It still is being transmitted today. And we still need to have that educational campaign going on. Nobody wants anyone to get AIDS. But what we know now is it's not just a gay disease. Anybody can get AIDS. And you describe in the book how your, your partner at the time came to you and said that he had AIDS. Yes. Um, probably one of the most traumatic things that ever happened to me. Um, first, you have to deal with the issue of how did he get AIDS. In those days, the only way you got AIDS was either intravenous uh, drugs or sex. So I had to try to figure out if he was using drugs or if he was having an affair. Um, but shockingly to me, he told me that I was the seventh person that he had told. And that hurt me more than anything else. Um, you would think that after so many years, um, you would be the most trusted person in that person's life. And I felt I wasn't. And within a couple of years, um, 
I found out that he was totally a different person than what I expected and that he was living a double life. And uh, our relationship ended. Where in this whole timeline we're talking about did you start the newspaper? Started the newspaper in 1976, which means that uh, this year we're coming up on our 40th anniversary. And when I started it, I had no money. And luckily I had a partner in Pittsburgh by the name of Jim Austin who was publishing the Pittsburgh Gay News and asked me if I would publish the Philadelphia Gay News. And within nine months of that partnership, Jim decided, because he was in the newspaper business his whole life, he wanted to get out. So within nine months, I'm now running two newspapers in two different cities. Uh, and what seems to be true about my entire life is that things just happened to me. And I wanted to name the book, It's Not Me, It's the Circus Around Me. Uh, and uh, I've been running the paper for 40 years ever since. You remember the first edition or the putting the first edition together? Who were the people around you and what was it like? Yes, I do very much so because one of the people is still with me. His name is Don Pinolet. He's been with me for all 40 years. But in those days when you put a newspaper together, you did it on white pieces of paper and you would take the columns and you would actually take glue and glue them down and then you would use press type for the headlines. There was no such thing called a computer printing newspapers. And then you would have to take those flats and actually deliver it to the printer. It was a long, cumbersome project. What were your stories on page one of your first edition? First issue of Philadelphia Gay News had uh, Walter Lear as our cover boy. He was the uh, governor's uh, health secretary, and which means he's one of the highest ranking state leaders in the state of Pennsylvania. And he came out in that issue. It was the first time that a Secretary of Health anywhere in the nation had come out. And we beat that in the second issue when we had an interview with Governor Milton Schapp. First time any governor had ever spoken to gay media. You still have copies of the first paper around? Yes. How many copies did you make? First copy, probably about 5,000. How'd you distribute them? Uh, we put them in gay bars, most likely. Free? Did you charge Free of them? charge. Until about eight months later, and I discovered something called the vending box. And so we went out and got some old vending boxes from a newspaper uh, that was putting new boxes. I called them up and said, what do you do with all your old newspapers boxes? And they said, we're going to throw them away. I said, I'll be glad to take them or buy them from you. And I bought them for a nominal fee, which I couldn't afford. And we put them out in the street, and we charged 75 cents for the paper. And that was the first money that I'd ever really made in my life. And I would go to restaurants, and uh, at, when they gave me the bill, I would pay in quarters. It was a weekly? Uh, at that point, we were every other week. Um, everything I bought was bought with quarters. Did you have advertisements? Yes, but they were primarily in those days from... Uh, gay businesses. Today, if you look at my newspaper, you'll find ads from Comcast, from Mercedes-Benz, from American Express. Uh, you'll find them from major banks, retailers, uh, automobile companies. Did you have reporters go out and cover stories? Yes. From day one, uh, I decided, like everything I've done, I believe, I hope, 
that I was going to do a professional job. I was going to really learn what being a publisher was all about. I literally didn't give myself title of publisher until two years into the publication because I didn't feel I had learned or earned the right as of yet. Were you able to get press credentials? That came the second year also. We went in City Hall and demanded them. And we got them. Now, we talk, uh, talked a little bit about the picture on the front cover of the book and how you looked then. When did you cut your hair? Uh, my hair slowly kept falling out. And it got short. But as it got shorter, I would do a crew cut. I would do the comb over. Um, I even tried to pay at one point, which absolutely looks ridiculous. Uh, at least the one I had did, at least. And eventually I figured, oh, just take it off and... I've always been myself. That was probably the only time in my life, and that boyfriend you talked about earlier was the one who suggested that. Uh, it was the only time in my life I think I was not myself was when I had that. And I finally got rid of that, and it was one of the best things I'd ever done. Uh, and this is what you get. This is me. Take it or leave it. Did you have uh, problems with people vandalizing your boxes or stealing newspapers or anything like that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, they would crash their cars into them. They would take hammers to them. They would put excrement in them. Uh, they would firebomb them. Uh, we had a routine that we kept three boxes in the office at all times. And if anyone vandalized our box, there would be another one out there the next day. We were going to show them we were going to win no matter what. They could keep it up as long as they want, and eventually we, we would win, and we've done that ever since. You have a, a mention in, your, in the book here that in 1993, Philadelphia Magazine named you the resident with the most clout in their annual Best of Philly issue above union leaders, corporate heads, and elected officials. At what point did you sense that you were going from the, the radical trying to change things to the mainstream guy? Well, I would guess that would be, again, Gactus Alliance when I came back to Philadelphia because that first piece that I had to do was get a bill introduced into city council. So I had to learn governmental systems. And as I learned and met all those people from city council, I also happened to meet mayors and governors and senators and state representatives. And I got to learn the, the, the art of networking and knowing that if you want to get something done, you have to know people. At what point did you see that your newspaper was accepted? Like, did, did you had straight readers reading your newspaper? I think that was Ed Rendell. Ed Rendell read every single issue of Philadelphia Gay News. Dr. Ethel Allen, who at the time was uh, first city councilwoman and then secretary of the Commonwealth, read every issue. And she knew it was good political clout, so she has to have a column in the paper. Is the struggle over? Is the battle won? Oh, absolutely not. Um, we now have marriage equality across the country, primarily except a few county clerks who are refusing to issue marriage licenses. But here's the truth of the matter. You can get married today, and because you're married, in most states in America, including Pennsylvania, you could be fired tomorrow. And your boss could say to you, I'm firing you because you're married. Or he could say, I'm firing you because you're a lesbian. I'm firing you because you're trans. That's all. You can't do that to the Irish. You can't do that to the Italians. You can't do that to the Catholics. can't do that to the Jews. can't do that to the blacks. You can do it only to gay and lesbian and bi and trans people. How did you get to be the person with the most clout? I really have no idea. <laughs> I think 
the, uh, what most people give credit to is a race that I organized to defeat a city councilman who was homophobic. His name was Fr Fran Rafferty. Uh, no one thought that it was viable. The Democratic Party, as strong as it is today, it was even stronger then. And if you ran for city council and you had the Democratic uh, Party endorsement, you won. And four years previously, he was the number one vote getter in the city of Philadelphia. So I took on the challenge of defeating this man. And people thought it wouldn't win. And our campaign uh, was very minimal. We had very little money. I think we raised a total at that point of $13,000 for the campaign. And we put bumper stickers together. But the key to that uh, election was that we ran the first LGBT political advertisement to defeat a uh, politician in history anywhere in the nation. And the commercial was a second, third, a 30 second spot. It said, at the end, it said, uh, vote no for Fran Rafferty. And only two TV stations would run that. Channel 17 in Philadelphia and Channel th 3 in Philadelphia at that point. And we ran it only a couple of times, but it had the effect of that uh, Johnson TV commercial that was never shown, the one with the atomic bomb and the little girl and the daisy. It had that effect in Philadelphia. And we won that election, and no one ever thought that we would. And the person re we replaced Fran Rafferty with is a man by the name of Jim Kenny, who most likely will be the next mayor of Philadelphia. When you started all this in 1969, did you have a, a, a vision for how you thought the, the LGBT community would be a part of society in the future, and how does it match up? I knew what we wanted. I never thought we would get there. Standing across the street from Stonewall and watching everything for a little while, uh, on that Saturday night, probably Sunday morning by that point, in 1969, I would have never envisioned marriage equality. I would have never envisioned gays in the military. Um, so I think most of us, and we still talk those of us still around, uh, say the same thing. No, we never thought all of this would come. And we're very happy for our little part in it, uh, but we realize the road is still far ahead of us. We have to first make sure that people can't be fired. Uh, and then we have to work on the acceptance thing and people getting to know us. There's an old adage in the gay rights movement. Uh, if everybody knew, uh, was out of the closet, uh, your parents, brothers, sisters, mothers, and fathers would know who we were. If they know, knew who we were, there would be no need for a gay rights movement because they would see we're just like they are. If you had advice for other people who wanted to be advocates for any kind of cause, what, what have you learned that you would impart? Get to know the people you're fighting for. Uh, appreciate that fight. Uh, be willing to be on the picket line. Be willing to add your name to a petition. Be willing to go visit a congressman, a senator, or anybody else who's needed to be visited. We're very lucky. Um, these days, we have uh, many, many, many non-gay allies. And that has helped our push for equality. And the people in elected office who are our allies and corporate heads who are our allies have brought us along that path at great well. What kind of tactics have you tried that worked and what didn't work? Uh, the biggest failure I ever had as a zap uh, was my zap of the White House. Uh, I had gotten a call from Bella Abzug, who's a, a feminist and congresswoman 
from New York. She had introduced the, the first gay rights bill into the uh, Congress. And it wasn't going very far. It had four uh, uh, co-sponsors. And she called me up, and, and Bella spoke like this. Mark, I have this bill in Congress. Not going very far. I need your help. At which point it was the after, after the Cron Cronkite zap, and I was probably the best-known gay activist in America. And I said, well, what do you want me to do? Take a look at it and see what you can do to help. So I looked at the bill over the weekend. I called her back. I said, Bella, there's one problem with your bill. I said, there's four of you, and you're all white. There's not one African-American on this bill. And Bella's simple answer was, Mark, do something about it. So I went to, by, so I went to this man. Uh, and his name was Robert N.C. Nix, and I told, told him about the issues of gay men and lesbian women, and he asked, what could I do? And he said, well, um, I said, you could sign on to the gay rights bill. You would be the first African-American, and that would help us a great deal. Robert N.C. Nix happened to be uh, someone I'd met when I was 13, marching in one of those marches with my grandmother, and he also happened to be one of the founders of the Black Congressional Caucus. And he signed on as the first African-American onto the bill we now call ENDA, which still sits in Congress unpassed. Are you, do you still have the kind of the fire in your belly for this? Or at some point are you thinking, you know, I've done my part? Oh, no. It's still there. It, it never leaves. Um, I said to you earlier that... Um, that night, the, while there wasn't a word for it, I looked at that building and what was going on, and I said, that's what I'm going to do the rest of my life. I'm going to be a gay activist. And I said that in my mind to myself, and I didn't know what it meant, really. Um, and I've had all types of what might be called careers, but they're all based on being a gay activist. That's who I am, and that's what I will always be. You can call me a businessman, you can call me a publisher, but to me, I'm a gay activist. And the Philadelphia Gay News publishes how often now? Every single Friday, and I'm happy to say that we're the only newspaper in Philadelphia that can say over 40 years we have never, ever missed a deadline. Is it online? It's online at epgn.com. That's www.e like an electronic, pgn as in philadelphiagaynews.com. We are out of time. We've been speaking with Mark Siegel. He is the author of this book, And Then I Danced, Traveling the Road to LGBT Equality. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.